The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the supreme, to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil. But living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Charlene. My name is Lee Eric Fesco. I'm the director of discipleship here at Christ Prez, and I am 51 years old. And the reason I share with you my age is so that you have a sense of the generation with which I am associated I'm of the age that grew up in the 80s and went to college in the 90s. And back then, there was a phenomenon that was known as clubbing. It was called clubbing because there were these establishments known as nightclubs. And in those establishments, there was all kinds of dancing, loud music, and obnoxious behavior. The nightclubs were the epitome of excess. Uh, When I was in college, the, the question was frequently overheard, are you going clubbing tonight? I'm here to tell you this morning that I still go clubbing, but the clubs I frequent now are Sam's Club (laughs) and Costco. And let me tell you, I get far more enjoyment out of Sam's Club and Costco than I ever did with anything that was offered to me in the 90s. These clubs are still a place of excess, but it's a far more useful excess. Usually when I go to the club, I will announce the fact that I'm going there. I'm going to Sam's Club now. Would anyone like to go with me? And usually everyone in my family says, yes, I'm in. Where are you going? What do you need? Why are you going there? To which I reply, I don't know. (laughs) But I know it's there. For example, it's long been a goal of ours, my wife Tracy and me, to build for ourselves a screened-in porch in the backyard. And that's a costly endeavor. And so it's taken some time to get that project off the ground. There's always something else that needs our attention. Uh, so the project keeps getting delayed year after year. But as we go up and down the aisles of Costco, I see structures with covered roofs that can be assembled in a matter of hours and provide you with many of the benefits of a screened in porch, uh, screened in porch but at a fraction of the cost. And so I'll ask my wife, hey, what about something like this for our backyard? I'm not saying this will replace the dream of a screened-in porch, but it will serve as a bridge. We can use this now until we're ready to build for ourselves the screened-in porch. My wife's response, absolutely not. Keep your eye on the prize, Fesco. Plan B distracts from plan A. And besides, money that we spend on your wholesale warehouse structure is money that can go into building the actual structure. 
And so we move on, and we go down the aisles, and I look for other things in the club that I didn't know I needed, like a robot vacuum cleaner, for instance. The ark don't become satisfied or distracted by, by what is only a temporary structure, lest it becomes the permanent one. To this point in our series on 1 Peter, the apostle writes a letter to Christians in the churches scattered across Asia Minor, Christians that are suffering, Christians who are being persecuted. And so far, what we've read about in the first chapter and into the second is that Peter is asking of them a good question. Who are you? Who are you? And so Peter labors to answer that question for them, reminding them of everything that they are, of everything that you are. You're elect. You're chosen. You're born again. You're holy purified. And something that he started out with in the first sentence of the letter, he repeats in the opening line of our passage today. You are exiles, sojourners and exiles. So it's as if Peter is bringing everything back around to where he started. Remember, in light of that, in light of all that you are, you are sojourners and exiles. This world is not your home. It's a temporary structure. Don't be satisfied. Don't be distracted by it because your citizenship Your citizenship lies elsewhere, and that's the first of the three things that I want to share with you today, the first being heavenly citizenship. And uh, there on the screen, we'll put all three points for those of you who like to to take notes. So this, though, marks the turning point in his letter because he moves from reminding them of who they are to now detailing for them what that means. In other words, because you're all these things, here's how that should play out in your behavior. Here's what that should look like. In this section, he begins once again with sojourners and exiles. You're strangers. Don't get, don't get carried away with what is ultimately a temporary structure. Don't become enamored with the trappings of, of what this structure has to offer because they are temporary. There was a Dutch-American theologian named Gerhardus Voss, which is an awesome name, by the way. He was a longtime professor of theology at Princeton Theological Seminary in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And preaching on Hebrews 11, 9 to 10, he was, uh, this is what that passage says. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why live in tents? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Your hardest Voss preached of the fathers of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Though they lived in this land of promise, what was ultimately the land of promise, they lived in tents. In other words, as Christians, this is who we are. We are people who don't set our roots terribly deep because our faith is one that looks forward to what is promised, to what is eternal. We do set roots We engage the culture and live in it, but we don't think of it as our permanent home. So Voss goes on to say this, He who knows that for him a palace is in building does not dally with desires for improvement on a lower scale. Don't don't fix your eyes on the temporary. Don't make the temporary permanent. Don't be seduced by, as Peter calls them, the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Don't be satisfied with the things that bring you temporary satisfaction, but be heavenly-minded. Be heavenly-minded. Here's what that means, and and this is why Peter is bringing up the imagery of of sojourners and exiles, because in this time, this time of of, uh, when this was written, citizenship was an important concept. 
The concept of citizenship is used throughout the New Testament. It was very relevant. During the time of this letter, citizenship was set up in the Roman world with city-states. A city-state was much like a nation. So if you were a citizen of that city, you had all the rights and privileges of citizens of that city, no matter where you were in that Roman world, in the known world at the time. So in the book of Acts, there's an account about Paul, who was a citizen of Rome. And one, one of the, the rights as a citizen was that you could not be imprisoned without a trial. That was one of the rights and privileges that citizens of Rome had. And in Acts 22, we learn that Paul was arrested without trial. And right as he was being stretched out for flogging, he says to the centurion, hey, there's something you should know before you get started. I'm a citizen of Rome. And suddenly it was a showstopper. They had no idea he was a citizen of Rome, but they started to scramble because they knew what it meant. Though he was outside of Rome, he still had all his rights and privileges as a Roman citizen. As a citizen of Rome, you can't be arrested, much less flogged without a trial. In other words, and here's how that applies here. Though you are here, though you live here, you are bound by the ethics of heaven. You are bound by your heavenly citizenship. Wherever you live here, your citizenship follows you wherever you go. That became your reality the moment you became a Christian. Your mind and your heart are fixed upon uh, on things you don't find here, things that aren't permanent. They're centered on Christ and His kingdom, and that becomes your motivation and your center for anything and everything you do. You have a new center. You have a new center that is informed by where your citizenship lies, the eternal kingdom of Christ. You have heavenly citizenship. So Peter starts off with that reminder. You are citizens of heaven. Therefore, in light of that, here's what that should look like. Here's what that should look like, you citizens of heaven. Step one, Peter tells us in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, in other words, among non-believers, keep your conduct honorable, he says. What do you mean by honorable, Peter? What is honorable behavior? Well, that's what Peter's about to get into. He starts detailing for us what honorable behavior in the life of a Christian looks like, but before he tells us the what, he tells us why. Also, in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, let's stop right there, when they speak against you as evildoers, this is what Christians Peter is talking to are, are up against. It's not just that Christians were persecuted. They were maligned too. They were accused of doing detestable things. They were accused of cannibalism because they spoke of the body and blood of Christ and consuming the body and blood of Christ. They were accused of being subversive to the Roman government because they proclaimed Jesus as Lord instead of Caesar as Lord. It's not just that they were viewed as weirdos. They were spoken of as evildoers. Evildoers for not following the religion of the day. Well, what religion was that? We might not think of it as a formal religion, but make no mistake, it was a religion. Society demanded that Christians bow down to the agreed-upon ethics of the day, and they didn't. And as a result, they were cast out of society and sometimes much worse. But do you see the irony here? It's not that they just wouldn't go along with the practices and mores of society, but, but they didn't bow down to its altar, and they were labeled, therefore, evildoers. Because you follow Christ, you are evil, they were told. Can you relate to that? And th this is really important here because of all that Peter is about to say, because in terms of giving people honor, often our impulse is to say, I'm supposed to give that person honor? 
So Peter is, is setting the stage for us and even telling us the why behind honoring people who go so far as to lie about you, to call you a, you a Christ follower, an evildoer. Why? Why do we honor people like that? Again, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, wow. Did you hear that? See what he's saying here? Your conduct, the way you honor people who don't honor you, is a means of evangelism. The way you honor people who don't honor you is a means of testifying to the hearts of man that they might be changed, that they might be saved. I don't want to suggest that we do this instead of speaking words to people. Words are very important. But along with our words, what we do, our behavior, the Lord uses as one of the means of bringing people into His kingdom. I want to talk to the the students in particular right now, those of you around middle school age, high school age, and college. I know for many of you, you're still trying to figure out how to integrate your Christian faith, what you believe into your daily life. When I was young, back, back, in the, back in the 80s, back when I was wearing the yellow pants and the suspenders, it's a great look, I was given the impression that the only way you can bring your faith into school was, was with a Bible tract. Here's how you share your faith with your friends. Step one, ask them this question. If you were to die tonight, right, and please don't get me wrong, I know a lot of people that, that did that and a lot of people who came to faith that way, but the truth is I couldn't bring myself to doing that. I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to starting a conversation with my friend by saying, hey, do you know Jesus? And I felt guilty about that for a long, long time. But then here's something I learned along the way that that I didn't figure this out until I was well into college. The way you live, the way you live, the actions you engage in, they bear witness about what you believe. And people do watch you. There are people who notice your behavior and will want to know why you chose to be honest in a situation where everyone else wasn't being honest. People will notice you showing respect when others are showing disrespect. People will notice patterns that seem to flow contrary to what others are doing. And doing that, even that, will glorify God. People will see your good deeds, and in so doing, people will be brought, to, brought near to God, and those people will glorify God on the day of visitation, the day that Jesus comes back. I've heard the saying, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. That's often incorrectly attributed to to St. Francis of Assisi, and I appreciate the sentiment, but I don't believe that's at the heart of what Peter is saying here. What he's saying here is that there will be occasion where you don't have the opportunity to use words. You can't explain to someone the truth of the gospel when you're not afforded that privilege, but your actions still bear witness. Sometimes your actions afford you opportunities when words aren't available, and yes, that's a good word for students, but that's a good word for all of us. May our actions match the words of our mouths, and may our actions and our words be reflected of the internal reality of our heavenly citizenship. May it reflect the internal reality of of the work of our Savior that He's done in us. May our actions match our convictions. That's what it means to be honorable. So moving on to verse 13, here's where we turn the corner, and he starts detailing some specifics, and he starts with the theme of submitting to authority. And I'm going to be honest with you. When I saw that I was scheduled to preach this particular passage, my first thought was, well, that's great. (laughs) 
If there's something everyone wants to hear about, it's how we need to honor every human institution, including the emperor and the governor, he says. Well, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by honor? What do I mean by honor? And that's usually the way it goes. Everyone seems to understand when I say, keep your conduct honorable. Got it. I'll do it. Great. Honor the person who holds political office. Uh, What do you mean by honor? Well, let's start with a basic dictionary definition here. Honor, as a verb, means regard with great respect. What do you mean by respect? (laughs) You see, when we talk about honoring the person in political power, maybe the person you didn't vote for, it seems like asking a lot these days, doesn't it? Lyric, I'd like you to put a really fine point on this. I want to know exactly what you're asking of me, right? First of all, it's not me that's doing the asking. It's the, the Apostle Peter. I'm just the messenger, but I do believe it. I do believe what's being said here because it's the Word of God. It's God's Word, so we've got to deal with it. We can't ignore it. We can't sidestep it. We have to try and understand what's being asked of us because it is God's Word. And let me tell you something else that you might not like. He's not just talking about the one seated in political office. He's talking about, as he says here, every human institution. What does that mean? It means anyone. It means everyone who has any authority over you, anyone, your teacher, your boss, the civil servant, your mothers and fathers. And yes, for all of us church members, when we took our membership vows, we agreed to be placed under the authority of the church. Okay, so what's the appropriate amount of honor that I need to have for all of these institutions? Let me try and shed a little light by way of another apostle, Apostle Paul. He speaks of this matter in Romans 13, and just listen to this for a moment. He says, Romans 13, 1 and following, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. In other words, the only reason anyone has any authority at all is because God gave it to them. They're not there by accident. They were put there in their position of authority because God did it. Okay, fair enough. Why did he do that? (laughs) So here's something else that's really important to understand about authority. We'll specifically speak to, to earthly governments for a moment. Why is God asking me to honor those who hold political office, for example? Because earthly governments are put in place to maintain order and exercise justice, which are reflective of God's character. Order and justice are heavenly ethics. They're reflective of our citizenship in heaven. And imperfect as they are now, they are reflections of what will one day be made perfect with the completion of all things. We honor and support the work of the civil servant so long as it doesn't uh, contradict God's commandments. We honor and support their work of doing all they can to reflect the future perfected reality of Christ's kingdom. You see, because whether they know it or not, whether they know it or not, their position is rooted in a heavenly ethic. And for that reason alone, if for no other reason, their position is worthy of our honor and our respect. So we tell our civil servants, even if you do just this much to uphold the godly ethics of order and justice, I'm going to honor your efforts because it's rooted in a heavenly ethic. Yes, but Lyric, the the person I'm thinking of, I don't see a trace of that evidence. I, I don't see a hint of the future reality of perfective justice and order. Not a hint. And again, I don't mean to imply that we never disagree with those in authority. Please don't hear that. 
We're talking about showing honor and respect, and so we ask, everyone? Honor everyone, really? Consider the fact that at the time of this writing, Nero was the emperor of Rome. Nero. So, in effect, what Peter is telling the church is, honor the emperor, even Nero. Nero was the one who burned down the city of Rome and played the fiddle as it burned. And then he blamed it on the Christians. He said, they're responsible for it. They did it. Honor him? Honor that guy? Yes, even him, because he sits in a position that is reflective of a heavenly ethic, even if he doesn't uphold it. Honoring the civil magistrate communicates something about what we believe, what we believe to be true, the future hope that not only awaits us, but promises to undo every injustice and evil act. When we honor the king, it speaks to what we believe about the actual king of kings. One of my sons is 15 years old, and for as long as I can remember, he's made the claim that he can beat me up. Dad, do you want to wrestle? And sometimes I'll say, no, I can't right now, and he'll respond with, are you afraid? And I say, son, I know you look at me and think of me as an old man, but what you don't understand is that I am old man strong. Old man strong is beyond words of understanding. It's like a mighty oak. Now, here's the thing. There will come a day when he will be unequivocally stronger than I am. I pray to that end. In fact, this is my hope and prayer. I want him to be better, stronger, smarter, more honorable than me. I want him to be better than me in every single way. I want him and long for him to be stronger than me. But not today. <laughs> so when he comes around telling me how easily he could, he could take me down, I'm not concerned because I know. We honor the king because we know. We know who holds the power. We know that, as Proverbs 21.1 tells us, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So even if the king offers violence against me, I honor because I know. I show him honor because I know who holds him there. And I know he can remove him without the slightest strain. We often disrespect what we fear. And we do not fear what we ultimately know has no power over us. This is why Peter tells us in verse 16, on the heels of telling us to submit to every authority, that we are to do that as people who are free. You honor authority from a place of freedom. I freely submit to the authorities that God has placed over me because I am free in Christ. Why else would you ever submit to authority? Of what benefit is it? It's only a benefit to submit to authority if you're trying to earn the favor of that authority. You and I are not bound by the law as a means to find favor with God. We have favor with God through Christ, maximum favor. So I submit to human law, human authority, from a place of freedom in Christ. The world tries to convince us that freedom is being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, that that is true freedom. If you're a free person, you can do whatever you want, but that's not really true. Everyone is a servant to something or someone, everyone. If I were to declare my freedom to do whatever I want in terms of what I eat, and I ate anything and everything all the time without limits, am I free? No, eventually it'll be the end of me. If I were to drive my car as fast as I possibly could, declaring my freedom to do whatever I wanted in terms of how I drive without limits, am I free? No, eventually it will be the end of me. It will destroy me. That's not freedom. 
Freedom is not a life without limits. Freedom is a life with limits. But the limits that bring you life, the ones that are consistent with your design, that are consistent with the design of the image of the one from which you were cast. This is why Peter tells you to do this as people who are free, but also says as servants of God. You see, so when Peter tells you to submit to authority, it is a restriction, but it's a restriction that is consistent with your design that shapes you in accordance with the one from which you were cast. I have a friend who, who doesn't live too far from here. He and his wife are the parents to five children, many of whom are grown and, and driving now. And most of his kids are of an age where their daily commitments and obligations take them in, in many different directions. So this means he has more cars pulling up to his house than maybe he ever dreamed he would. He and his wife have cars, and, and then there's two or three more cars with which his children occupy the driveway and, and into the street. Maybe some of you have positive feelings when I say the term homeowners association, the HOA, but I suspect many of you don't. I don't, I get it. I don't like the idea of someone telling me what I can and can't do with a house that I am paying for or have already paid for. My friend might have had similar feelings about his HOA, and if not, his feelings would soon catch up to yours because he was sent a letter from the HOA reminding him of the neighborhood covenant, which does not permit him to park cars on the street overnight, and he was doing this on a daily basis. And the kicker to go with it? Being told he was facing potential fines for doing so. Was he upset? Yes, he was. He was upset, and as he told me, this, this isn't ideal for me. I didn't want it to be this way. I didn't plan for this to be the way. This wasn't what I would choose had I had other viable options. So what am I supposed to do with a cold, terse, impersonal, threatening letter they mailed to me from down the street? He had some options. One of them was to reply in kind, unloading on them, giving them a piece of his mind. Another option, which he ultimately took, after allowing himself to cool down from the seething rage he'd worked himself into, he penned a letter himself, and he began the letter with, Thank you. Thank you for your letter. And then he followed that with a respectful explanation of how he got to be in the position he's in. And he followed that with, Can you help me? Can you help me? How might I be able to solve this problem working together with you to the satisfaction of the HOA? Well, the letter prompted a response from the HOA. Do you know what their letter said? It started off with, thank you. <laughs> thank you for not hating us. Thank you for engaging us. Thank you for being willing to enter into a dialogue with us. Thank, thank you for showing us respect. We don't usually get that. So they invited him in to have a meeting, and not only did they come up with a workable solution, my friend is now a board member on the HOA. He's in charge of parking. <laughs> and I saved the best bit of information for last. My friend's name is Pastor Russ Ramsey. He's the pastor of our Cool Springs campus. Now, I tell you this story for two reasons. I don't like to say nice things about Russ, so you know it must be important. I'm kidding. Russ and I tease each other a lot. He's one of my closest, dearest friends. Russ, with honorable behavior, engaged with those in authority over him. Why? Because 
he did this honorably. Why? Because his citizenship lies elsewhere. His action should be reflective of that, and he knows it. His honorable behavior invited conversation, actual dialogue. Based on their response, I have to wonder if one or more of them said, what makes him tick? What is his center? What motivates him? Why was his behavior so different than the others? So that's the first thing. This story puts these principles on display, how honoring the authority, honoring of authority, honoring of everyone brings glory to God. And a second, do you want to change the world? We, we often set our sights really high on, on changing the world. I'm going I'm to send a tweet out, and I'm going to tag the president. You know, you can try and change the world through social media, and if you could, please let me know when you've changed one person's mind because I've not actually ever seen it happen. If you want to bring about gospel change, start locally, really, really locally. Start with your neighbors, maybe even your actual neighbors. Become involved and interested with local government at the level where you can have, you know, face-to-face conversations with people, with people who can observe your behavior and then, Lord willing, one day glorify God themselves. And do you see ultimately why Peter is telling us to do these things? I talk about reflecting a heavenly ethic, but what he's telling us to do here reflects the ultimate heavenly ethic, that being a God who is holy, A God who is holy, giving of himself to bring near a people who did not show him respect, who did not show him honor, yet he honored them. Your heavenly Father sent his Son, and when he did, we did not show him honor. Isaiah 53, 3 says this of Christ, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We didn't honor him. We didn't respect him. And how did he respond? He submitted himself to earthly authority. Romans 5, 7 to 8, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we disrespected God, while we didn't show Him honor, Christ died for us. Our heavenly ethic comes from the one who first extended it to us so that we might be made like Him. Let me close with this thought from Matthew 5, 14 to 16. It says this, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Join me in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, uh, please give us the will. Please give us the desire to reflect our heavenly citizenship, to do your will in this way, that we would be reflections of the one who showed ultimate humility, and in so doing, he glorified God. That's our prayer for us today, that we may reflect that sort of behavior that, that, that those around us would see our good deeds and glorify God. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.